You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist and I'm joined by Aaron Lammer and Max Linsky from Longform. Hello. Hey, you guys. Welcome back. Evan, tell me about who is on the program this week. This week I talked to Carl Zimmer. I would say if you've read a story about biology or evolution that you liked sometime in the last 10 to 15 to 20 years, it's a pretty good chance it was by Carl Zimmer. I don't know how we have not had Carl Zimmer on the show yet. Alan, okay, can we, can we talk, can we give some insider show discussion here? I, when you said Carl Zimmer, I th- I said, but we've already had Carl Zimmer on the show. <laughs> well, that's disturbing. Yeah. First of all. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Carl, he writes all the time for the New York Times. You'll see his stories on the front page. He also writes longer stuff for National Geographic, The Atlantic, and he's written like 14 books, something like that. So he's a very, very prolific science writer and very, very good at it. Finally, Carl Zimmer. We we always have a good time with science writers on this show. We need more. Check out that Ross Anderson episode. Throwback. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to tell people about Ross Anderson or some of your other favorite long-form podcasts, you're going to do, uh, do you want to let a lot of people know at once. I would join 14 million happy businesses with MailChimp. They're simply the only people to serve your email needs, whether you're starting a tiny project or trying to reach thousands and thousands and millions. They're reliable, easy to use, and fairly priced. And good people, just solid people at MailChimp. And supporters of the show. That's true. Here is Evan, finally, with Carl Zimmer. Carl Zimmer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really great to have you on. I've obviously been reading your writing for a really long time. In fact, like even getting into science writing, which I used to do a lot more of, I used to just read you religiously um, because I feel like you're a great pro stylist and also just like really good at explaining things that are naughty. Naughty, K-N-O-T-T-Y, is that right? Not the other one. But the, I can try that too. Yeah. Well, I've read some of your, your erotica yeah. stuff that you do on the side as well. You know, sexual selection, all that stuff. <laughs> Nature's not safe for work. Well, one of the, one of the places I, want to, I wanted to start was to talk about your curiosity because you're, you're a prolific writer. You have done, you know, you've always had a column in the Times for a long time. You've been on, written for all of these different publications. You've written more than 10 books. 
And it seems like you have a kind of like insatiable curiosity for science. And I'm interested in where that comes from. I mean, I wasn't a kid who said, I want to be a science writer. It didn't occur to me. Um, but I was definitely always swallowing up stuff about science. I don't know. I was one of those kids who watched Cosmos with Carl Sagan and mm-hmm. things like that. And, you know, I, I when I was 10, I moved out to a farm and I was just always sort of wandering around and looking at the weird creatures and plants and so on and trying to say, like, what the hell is this? And, you know, and it could be something as basic as like a tick. Like, what? How? What does this thing do? You're telling me this sucks my blood and then it falls off and then it produces thousands of babies? That's disgusting, but fascinating. (laughs) That was, uh, I remember when ticks were still this like object of fascination for little kids, but they weren't scary because Lyme disease wasn't a thing. I know. It was like you would get a tick or your like dog would get a tick and it would be this thing that you'd be, my parents would like burn them off with a match. Well, yeah, certainly growing up on a farm with, you know, dogs and cats, you know, ticks were part of life. <laughs> but they weren't the they weren't the Lyme disease ones. You know, that's this sort of modern disturbed ecology world that we live in. You yeah. Know? I yeah. mean, I, I wrote a whole feature for Outside about ticks, which was a huge amount of fun. Uh, actually got to go to Lyme, Connecticut, you know, uh-huh. what Lyme disease is named after. The capital of Lyme disease. Yeah, and we went dragging for ticks in the in the woods and it was terrifying. They're just everywhere. <laughs> That's part of what I feel like is so interesting to me about your level of curiosity, which is that it ranges. I mean, a lot of people would say they're interested in biology or that, you know, they love animals. But you've gone so deep on, you know, parasites and sort of like what they are and how they got here and what they do. But so tell people who don't know a little bit about like where you went to college and how you how you initially got into science writing. So um, ever since I could remember, I wanted to be a writer, although I wasn't totally sure what that meant. And so I, you know, worked at the high school newspaper, wrote sort of uh, opinion pieces and did some reporting, worked at uh, the local weekly county newspaper. And uh, when I went to Yale, I took English classes. My freshman year English teacher was, uh, professor was so kind to me. He said, so what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a writer. And he said, okay, well, just bear in mind that here we don't teach you to be a writer. We teach you how to be a critic. And I thought, whoa, okay, wait a minute. (laughs) And so I did not want to be some literary theorist. I I wanted to be a writer. So basically I kind of retooled my plans and just took classes about writers like Melville, who I just wanted to learn from. So I came out of college you know, thinking I wanted to write fiction. And I was, you know, I was writing stories and trying to write a novel. And for a while, I worked as a carpenter in Philadelphia. And then I moved to New York with my then girlfriend. And, and then I just wasn't really, you know, I needed a job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fiction writing was not really going anywhere. And I was thinking, well, maybe there isn't something that I have to say in this format. And uh, I decided to just send out some letters uh, in the regular mail (laughs) to uh, magazines to see if I could get some sort of entry-level work. I got one response from Discover Magazine saying that there was an opening for an assistant copy editor. And if I wanted to come in and take the copying test, I could do that. So I went and I got the job. And that's how I became a science writer, basically. And then, I mean, I don't know if you want to recapitulate it here, but this one tragedy in your life helped shape 
why you really dove into science writing. Yeah. I'm, so my girlfriend at the time was slated to go into the Peace Corps, and she was going to go to uh, Rwanda. And so I was you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do in the meantime. And so I started working at Discover. Um, she went to Rwanda and got sick about seven or eight months into it, you know, and then just had to come back. And it was just, it was not going to work out. And so that was tough and a disappointment. And then she was trying to figure out what she was going to do next. And um, she applied to Columbia Journalism School and was just starting there when she got diagnosed with cancer. And it was pretty quick, you know, as these things go. It was a matter of, I guess, about a, gosh, maybe a year or something like that. And mm-hmm. then and then she died. Um, and so that was, that's a pretty hard thing to, to deal with in, in your mid-20s. And um, I think I hadn't really appreciated just how much I was getting out of writing about science at the time that, that, um, I was taking it for granted. I started to appreciate that it was this such a wonderful thing and a, a comforting thing, a consoling thing that the natural world is there and it's waiting for you to learn about it. And there's always going to be something more to learn about and it's it's always going to be there for you. And uh, it kind of reached a sort of a peak, as it were, um, when I was working on my Parasite book and I... I decided I needed to go to places where parasites were like really important. So like one place is just so happened that I was able to get into southern Sudan when there was a civil war going on and uh, they were dealing with an outbreak of uh, sleeping sickness, Mm -hmm. which is about as nasty a parasite as you could hope for. And it was kind of crazy that I was there. Um, You know, I was very much... I. You know, after Esther, my girlfriend had died, I'd sort of been feeling very fragile and almost kind of hypochondriac because, you know, when you see somebody just boom, out of nowhere, just gone, you just feel like, how long are any of us going to be here? And um, one night when I was there, I was trying to get to sleep in this camp next to this kind of ramshackle open air hospital of sorts. And... You know, I'm under this mosquito netting, and I've been told about how, like, this place gets the worst malaria anywhere. Right, it's like a special variety of malaria. (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, I'm with these doctors who love working in these places because they save huge amounts of lives, obviously, but they become our connoisseurs of stuff like malaria, and they're like, oh, yeah, the malaria here, wow. Not what you want to hear. Anyway, I'm looking up at this sheet, you know, this net, um... It's supposed to keep out the mosquitoes, and I, I don't have a lot of faith in it, you know. And and I'm just like just freaking out and uh, just imagining that I'm going to get cerebral malaria. And then you know, and then I sort of had this moment where I said, like, you know, there clearly there's something in you that is wanting to be alive, and you want to stay in this game. There's a meaning to why you're here, and um, just you know, accept that, you know, you're going to fight. You can't help it. I mean, you're alive. So I came home from that. Definitely a changed person. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, Audible. 
If you're looking for an audiobook, like, let's say, my last guest, Wesley Lowry's They Can't Kill Us All, uh, you should probably look at Audible. They've got uh, all the books you want. Pretty much any book, I would say. And they've got all the best ways to listen to them iPhone. Uh, if you want to listen and switch off with your Kindle, you can do that with WhisperSync. I just got myself an Amazon Echo, and you can say, Alexa, play the audiobook, and then pause, and then say, Alexa, play it again, and it picks up right where you were. That's incredible. Best part is that you can get a 30-day free trial and a free audiobook of your choice by going to audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E.com slash longform. You will be supporting this show and supporting yourself, having an amazing listening experience. Again, audible.com slash longform. Thank you, Audible. We are additionally sponsored by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it is included with your Squarespace website. They make it very easy to put up a website that looks highly professional. They've got amazing templates, so you can get something that looks great without knowing any code. And if you sign up for one year, you will get a free custom domain, a custom home for your project. If that project becomes a business, well, they've got you covered with seamless commerce tools and amazing 24-7 customer support. So I want you to go to squarespace.com, put in offer code LONGFORM. You get 10% off your first purchase, and you'll be supporting the show. Again, squarespace.com, offer code LONGFORM. Thank you, Squarespace. As you got more into science writing, so I know that you worked at the Fact Checker at Discover. Mm-hmm. I picked up on that somewhere along the line because I myself got my start as a fact checker. Best way to start. It is the best way to start. And did you, as someone who did, did hadn't studied science but had studied English and sort of come at it from a writing angle initially, did you have confidence in your ability to understand and explain things from the beginning? The nice thing at Discover was that the editor-in-chief there, Paul Hoffman, he did not have any time for us to be fussy about what we were or were not going to write about or going to fact-check about. It's like you had to be a utility player. You had to be ready for anything. So, you know, I'd be fact-checking stories about physics or stories about ecology or stories about medicine, whatever needed to be checked. When I started to write short pieces, you know, I wrote about all sorts of different things. I mean, basically... Paul just wanted us to be pitching stories that were interesting and to get a variety of stuff in there to really cover the the breadth of science. And so on the one hand, you did learn to have a certain amount of confidence, you know, like I'm going to fact check this story on power lines and cancer and I'm, I better get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, but on, on the other hand, you were also incredibly humble and paranoid all the time. Because there's just so many ways that a story about science can go wrong. So many different ways, you know. And I, and it was really it was astonishing. Like, I would, you know, be fact-checking some piece by one of the country's best science writers, someone who I really respect, and I would have, like, a fact-checking report that was, like, you know, with 50 footnotes or something where, like, this has to be changed, this has to change, this isn't quite right, that's not right, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Like, and these are the best people. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. You know, I'm always scared about getting things wrong. And sometimes I do, and, and um, I do not try to um, wiggle out of it. You know, if, if you get things wrong, it's, there's no shame in it. You just have to cop to it and push towards the truth. Well, while we're on this, there's a sort of uh, another layer to it, too, which 
I feel like I experienced in fact checking where you submit that manuscript and you say, okay, I've got all these changes. And then an editor will say, in some cases, well, I see what you're saying, but this is a matter of trying to explain this in the most straightforward way. And there is, I feel like this is what makes science writing so uniquely hard to me and why, frankly, like I don't do it as much anymore. I think it's very difficult because you're trying to take things that are incredibly complex and explain them and inevitably you're simplifying. And how do you, do you have techniques that you sort of stick to over and over again to kind of make that happen, to like take something complex and explain it without, in the end, it being wrong by its simplicity? I'm always asking myself that. Am I making something too simple? Am I leaving too much out? But I think that um, just sort of as a general principle, when you're writing this kind of stuff, you need to ask, what's the minimum that I can get away with writing about, you know? Because you don't want to to go into it saying like, okay, I'm gonna talk about this experiment, you know, where they found the Higgs boson. And so um, what I'm gonna need to do is I'm gonna need to first write about the entire history of physics, just just so that the readers really get grounded and then we can get to the Higgs boson. You can't do that. I mean, because no one's gonna sit around reading your 10 volume opus to finally get to, you know, your magazine article at the end of it. Right. So what's the minimum you can get away with? Which then makes you really like think like, what's the point I'm trying to make? Then you can kind of back up and say like, okay, well, you know, I can assume that most people know what gravity is. You know, I can assume that people have heard about DNA before or whatever, but, you know, they may be a little fuzzy on how you go from a gene to a protein. So I might need to kind of nod at that, not bury people in jargon, but, you know, just touch on that to make sure all the pieces are there. You just say like, well, what if I took that sentence out? What if I took that out? What if I pull these things out? Does it still make sense? And, you know, and I I will, you know, run stuff past my wife, Grace, or friends, you know, who are not scientists themselves and say Mm -hmm. like, be honest, does this make any sense to you? And, you know, fortunately, I I know honest people. (laughs) It would be a shame if they'd been lying to you all these years and you were writing just like <laughs> yeah. the densest yeah. academic prose. Right. Um, tragic. So you still, to this day, you know, write about all flavors of science at different times, but it seems like you did gravitate towards certain topics, biology-based or evolution. I definitely was really fascinated with evolution when I was a kid. And I actually remember that um, in high school, when I took my first, you know, expository composition class, and you you write a paper, <laughs> I chose to write about a controversy at the time. So this would have been the early '80s. There was, I believe, it was a Supreme Court case about teaching creationism in classrooms. Mm-hmm. I think it was Arkansas where this was happening. And I was just fascinated. I was like, wow, really? So there are people who are trying to push creation science in classrooms instead of actually teaching the real science. Mm-hmm. Now, even now, in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, uh, surely this will be the uh, this will be the end of it. You know, I'll just be writing about the, the close of this phase of history. Little did I know, uh, here we are, and it, n- not much has changed in, in, in the long run. But I, it's interesting looking back at that and saying like, hmm, Maybe maybe that was when I became a science writer. I, I don't know. But certainly evolution, I mean, to me, you know, evolution was just, you know, the more you learned about it, the more fascinating it got. It's got everything because it is everything. It's about how, all of life and how life got to be the way it is. And, you know, the history of life is full of things that are way weirder than anything alive today. And, and it's so many different kinds of 
scientific thinking at once. So like, you know, our ancestors were fish. How did they come on land? Well, you can look at these fossils of these bizarre eight-fingered critters with legs and gills and so on splashing around the coast of Greenland. Or you can look at experiments on embryos where scientists study actually how limbs develop, you know, as opposed to fins. There's no end of it. Every time, you know, I would go into it, it would just reward me with so much that I would just have to go back in again. Do you find that writing about this gives you, like, broader perspective in life? Like, when you're parenting your kids or dealing with everyday frustrations, have you, like, brought in this sort of epochs of evolution into your brain that you can then, like, call on? <laughs> um, you know, when you're getting up at 3 a.m. because one of your kids is screaming with a cold, you don't feel that that sort of big picture. You don't uh, think... The interesting thing about that virus is... Oh, no, but that's... it's What's funny is that, you know, evolution, people think about it as like, oh, billions of years ago, such and such happened. But really, it's a way of posing questions about, you know, everything having to do with biology today. I mean, you really need to think about everything in an evolutionary framework. So why... Why do children cry? Like, what, what, what's the point? I mean, you know, I, 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 when, when my girls were little, and I, I mean, I, I don't know how you're doing these days, but for me, I, I mean, sometimes I just walk in when they're in the middle of their crying jacks and be like, really? Like, I'm right here. I'm right here. Like, you've got everything you need. There, there's no point to this. But clearly, this is, this is just something that you're just all in on. Yeah. You know, and that will bring you into, like, looking at, well, why is it that baby birds make lots of noise, which is really dangerous. You know, you're a baby bird, you make noise, you get killed. So why do it? Well, because you are basically trying to manipulate the brain of your parents. <laughs> well, it's it's working. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah, the guilt you feel when you leave that child there screaming, you know, you feel terrible. Well, that, I asked that question in like kind of a flip way, but I, I, what I really mean is, I mean, kind of harkening back to your, your earlier story about being in South mm -hmm. Sudan that I think one of the reasons why certain groups of people have resisted evolution as a theory is that it seems like a materialistic view of biology is like a letdown. But there's also something, if you look at it in a different way, very uplifting and affirming about it. Well, you know, Darwin closed the origin of species by talking about how there's a grandeur in this view of life. That was the phrase he used. And I totally believe there is. Life on Earth is just endlessly fascinating and always full of surprises. I mean, that's how I can write a column every week, no problem. There's always something that just kind of blows the roof off my head because I'm like, really? Like, really? And evolution is the framework that lets you understand how these things fit together. So, I mean, I've talked to people about the problems they feel about evolution, you know, and I try to like say like, look, I mean, it's like trying to say that gravity makes you feel bad. I mean, it's like, you know, we didn't know about gravity 2,000 years ago. And gravity actually, like, changed us a lot, you know, in terms of how we think about how the world works. But, you know, I think everyone's basically okay with gravity now. I would hope at some point more people will be okay with evolution because it's just the foundation of modern biology. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the the sort of practicalities of like how you, you know, for instance, do that column every week. Like what's your practical process for looking at what's being published and, and what people are talking about and distilling that into ideas that you're going to pursue? I'm old enough that I, 
you know, when I was looking for ideas as just someone starting out at Discover Magazine, we were on Fifth Avenue and 17th Street. And so I'd walk down to the New York University Library and page through the latest issues of journals to see what there was and then photocopy them and then come back to the office. It was uh, kind of a different world then. So now it's really more, what's your strategy for sort of standing in front of the fire hose, you know, so you don't get knocked over? Because mm-hmm. there, there's just so much, so many studies that are getting published in so many different areas. And every day you are flooded with press releases. All the journals are blasting you, letting you know what papers are going to be coming out in a few days. So I try to sort of forage in a sort of semi-rational way, you know, look at the particular journals I'm interested in, kind of look for keywords, things that I, I, I that really are exciting to me. But still, like, word of mouth really matters a lot, mm. you know. So more and more often I'm finding that individual scientists, often who I don't know, will get in touch with me and they'll say, I've got this paper coming out and this is the thing that I'm most proud of ever, you know. Mm. Like, this is, this is what really excites me. Because, you know, scientists themselves have this problem where they have to just be cranking out so many papers just to get tenure and all that, you know. So so if they stop and say, like, well, this is the thing that I'm most proud of, then, you know, I'm going to definitely pay attention. Um, then, you know, on Twitter, is, I'm finding that can be useful as well. If scientists whose opinion I respect, like, are pointing to a new paper, often it's one that I haven't heard about. But uh-huh. I'm like, oh, they're singling this out as being something that's worth looking at. Uh-huh. Why is that? Why Why do they think it's important? And so I'll go and check it out. Do you feel like you need to do sort of baseline upkeep of your knowledge of certain areas? Like, I'm curious, like, how much you're regularly in contact, let's say, with scientists just to be like, what's going on in your field? Or what, you know, what's the latest thing? I try to stay in contact pretty frequently. And if I'm interviewing somebody about some particular paper, you know, if there's time at the end, I might say, like, you mind if we just talk a little more about the field in general, like where are things going and what really matters? Some of the most interesting things come out of that. You know, I, I remember interviewing some for a paper they published and then uh, there was a pause and uh, the the scientist said, um, so I know we're done with this, but do you got a minute? And I was like, yeah, I've always got a minute. And <laughs> she, then she just told me about this experience she had had, uh, you know, battling this outbreak of resistant bacteria in a hospital and I was just like thank you (laughs) because I'd been looking for a story like that for quite some time and then you know it just sort of came up out of the blue Uh Um, yeah even with you know all the resources you you can have online still that sort of person-to-person contact is is really valuable and a story that you did very recently this year for stat about your own genome uh, you got your genome sequenced, which is a story like, I feel like there was, a, I did one of these stories actually when like 23andMe first started, uh-huh. where it was like, oh, they did my genome. And yeah. then, but you took it to a, like th- those stories that kind of petered out, but then you took it to this other level, which is your entire genome sequence and then obtained the data and kind of went to these scientists uh, to have them look, go look for all aspects of it. It was absolutely fascinating. And one of the things that interested me was your relationship to the scientists bringing this data to them, because that's not a usual, that's not the way a story usually works. And did you have, were you met with uh, enthusiasm when you said sort of like, I want to be a participant in this story and I want you to study me? 
Uh, yeah, actually. Um, uh, the, the thing was that um, I had been writing a lot about um, research on genomes, and I'd been talking to a lot of people who study human genomes and genomes of other species, and they were really kind of, you know, le- helping me to understand just what a crazy uh, sort of art and science it is to study genomes, because you just, you get blasted from these DNA sequencers with all these bits of data, and you've got to, like, put it all together, and you're you're pretty sure you've made some mistakes in the process, but you can kind of tolerate the mistakes, and then you're trying to basically, like, analyze, you know, these billions of bases all at once, and, and it... And I knew that that's how genomics really works. And I wanted to write a story like that about my own genome rather than saying, like, I got my genome sequenced and, oh, I'm, I've got a mutation for, you know, hangnails in the end. You know, I, I, I wanted somehow, like, to bridge that gap. Yeah. And so I just started talking with uh, some scientists I knew, like Dan MacArthur at the Broad Institute. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, uh, someone in my lab, you know, Conrad Karzuski, he's he's your guy. He's he's done this him, himself as well. So, he, you know, we'll, we'll set you up. And so Conrad was like, yeah, sure, let me show you how we do it. And I sort of would go to all these scientists that I had dealt with in the past and then scientists I'd never dealt with. And I'd be like, so, um, so I have managed to get my hands on all my raw data, which is not easy, um, but I've got it. I've got this hard drive. Do you want to play? You know, you study how our ancestors, you know, interbred with Neanderthals and others. Like, let's take a look at my genome and sort of use that as an object lesson for what you study. Which I'm literally carrying around in a hard drive in a little yeah. bag. Yeah, I know. It was crazy. Like, well, it's all this raw data, I think like 60 gigabytes. And so they said like, okay, well, we'll give it to you, but by mail. <laughs> so, it was crazy how you got it, though, because some of the scientists they couldn't even get the raw data of their own genome when yeah. they got it sequenced because the company that sequences it owns it. Well, we're we're just in this weird gray zone right now where it's kind of crazy that it's possible to sequence people's DNA and yet, you know, this knowledge is not considered safe. You know, that's kind of ultimately what it comes down to. Like, um, you know, when 23andMe, when, you know, you get 23andMe test, like, uh, I don't know when you got it in the order of things, but there was a point where they were, like, basically, like, saying, like, oh, and here's your risk for this disease and that disease and this and that. Mm-hmm. And then the FDA said, you got to stop. Yeah, I was before before that, so I got a little chart of all these diseases and my, my risk. Right. Yeah. So they, they, they now they've sort of retreated, and now they'll give you, like, information on just the most sort of bulletproof totally solid things that we know about the genome. And everything else is just everyone's kind of worried about where, where things are going to go and who's going to sue who or so on. You know, I actually, to get my genome sequenced, I actually had to get a doctor to order it as a medical test. Uh-huh. You know, that's so the company Illumina, that's how they were sort of handling all this. Like, you're going to go to a doctor and get a medical, order a medical test. So I went to my own doctor and I said... I'm going to write an article. Could you sign this? You know, and he looked at it and incredulously he's like, no, I'm not signing this. I'm like, really? He's like, I I only order medical tests that I have confidence in. I have no confidence in this. You know, I mean, how am I supposed to use this for you as a patient? No way. Not going to do it. So I actually had to go to um, a geneticist uh, who had sort of invited me into this whole genome sequencing experience. And he said, okay, I'll be your doctor for this. And he actually did a clinical genetics workup for me as well. Yeah. But you had to doctor shop. Yeah. 
I, I did. I said, look, I'm going to be, I'm just doing this as a journalist and don't worry about it. I can handle it. If I find out something disturbing, I'll just, it's all on me. And he's like, nope, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> it was a bizarre experience from beginning to end. I once did a story about uh, Provigil, the drug that uh, keeps you awake. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to get a prescription for it. So I went to my doctor and I, can't, I had this whole spiel about, I'm doing an article on it, but also like I work very late at night. And so this makes sense for me to get. And it was like exactly what someone would say if they were, you can't really get addicted to ProVigil, but if they were addicted, they would give this kind of spiel. <laughs> and I thought he was going to say like, I don't do this. And he just, he just wrote me a prescription. <laughs> he didn't ask any questions. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you will write for such a wide variety of outlets. Obviously you have a Times thing that's long running, but you know, new things show up like Stat or Mosaic, and then you've done eBooks. Like, is this intentional in the sense of like you want to sort of have a diversified career? Well, I, I worked at Discover for ten years, and then I was starting to work on books, and I was just, uh, you know, there was a change of leadership at the magazine, and I sort of felt like this was this was my time to kind of leave and work on my own full time and try different things. And I wanted to try different things. And so then I discovered, you know, the world of being a freelancer and talking to people who had made a, a successful go of it. I mean, I think the an important lesson that they conveyed to me was that, you know, you want to just be continually nurturing your portfolio. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket and say like, oh, I found this one editor at this one magazine and life is perfect, you know, because that editor may get fired or that magazine may close. And then what are you going to do? Now, it's it's always tough to sort of find the right balance, you know, because you can't be doing everything for everybody. But I want to sort of budget in a certain amount of time to trying some some new things. And, you know, some of it doesn't go anywhere. Some of it goes well for a while and then stops and and that's okay. So, I mean, actually, like these days, m my uh, life is professionally is pretty simple, but there have been times in the past where I've been working for a lot more different magazines and so mm -hmm. on. You're probably one of the few people that's written about science for Playboy, I would think. <laughs> um, there, no, there have been, been... There been some other people who have, but yeah, yeah that was that was kind of an... Um, that was interesting. Yeah, that's a, the Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, profile that you did. Right, right. Yeah, they just a great one. Yeah, they came to me and said, "Would you write a profile of Neil deGrasse Tyson?" And I was like, "Wow, no one's ever asked me that." And so I was like, "Yeah, that'd be really interesting." And um, you know, I, you know, I, I, in hindsight, I don't, I, I don't feel great about the, uh, you know, the context in which the article appeared. Let's put it that way. I, you know, I. I think I might not have taken the it, but you know I can take that story and put it on my website, and people can read it without, you know, the other stuff in Playboy. And I, that story was a lot of fun because I was trying to figure out like what is it about Neil deGrasse Tyson that makes him so unusual? He's this person who who talks and he he talks about science in this way that nobody can resist, and so I was going to write about him that way as as almost like a performer in the best sense of the word mm -hmm. and i wanted to see him in performance in different contexts so you know i went to see him talk to a crowd at the hayden planetarium at the american museum of natural history you know sort of his home game as it were <laughs> um 
But then I went to see him talk in other contexts. So like at a star party, for example, he, he was just talking to, you know, a group of like 50 people just in a field in the dark about what was in the sky and had everyone totally captivated. And I went to hear him talk in um, Tulsa. Mm-hmm. I was looking at his schedule and, he, and I said, hmm, Tulsa, Oklahoma, like 10 a.m. on a Thursday. Whoa. Like, wow. That, that is just so interesting on so many levels. Uh, I'm gone. And it was this huge auditorium. I don't know, maybe 3,000 seats. Filled it. And, you know, about two hours into his talk, he said, I know I'm going a bit long, but you, you still with me? And everyone was just totally like, yes, just keep going. Just take us further out into the universe. Yeah. And uh, I was reading it yesterday. It's like a it's like a rock star. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a and this was even before he did the new Cosmos. Um, you know, it was just, yeah, right. He was big, but not not as big as he is now. Right. Yeah. But but, you know, it was obvious that that um, there was something about him. And it wasn't like, oh, this was just all natural to him. I mean, these are things that he thought about really carefully. Like, I'm a scientist. I want the public to understand astronomy and why it's cool and why it matters and how it works and to support it. And you don't just, like, deliver a, you know, graduate school lecture to people. That won't do it. You know, you have to figure out, like, how are you going to engage with people what are the words you're going to choose? How are you going to like convey your own emotion and feelings about it? How are you going to do all that? And he thought a lot about it. And he thought about the audiences he wanted to reach. I remember when I was interviewing him and he starts telling me about how he's going to be doing the new Cosmos. And I was like, whoa, really? Because I'd never heard about this before. It really hadn't made news yet. And I said, so is this going to be on PBS like your other TV shows? Are? And he's like, no way. No, this is on Fox. Because I don't want to have a show on PBS. I want to reach a, a big audience. Uh, in the same way that he had a um, a radio show, mm-hmm. uh, Star Talk Radio, and he wasn't going to do it on NPR. He was going to have it on AM radio. That was all like him just thinking very clearly about reaching a broad public rather than like being in a corner talking to like-minded people. And to some extent, I mean, his project is also your project. Like what you're describing is also what you do. At what level are you thinking about your stories as educating the public, trying to get people to understand science versus a, something that's more personal to you or between you and your editor? Like cr- like crime writers don't go out and say, like, I'm trying to educate the public about crime, or if they do, they're ridiculous. But like there is this other layer that's similar to what he's talking about, which is do you do you experience that larger purpose as you're researching these stories and writing these stories? I think that's there, but but you need to kind of hold it in check because you want to be writing stories. You know, you don't want to be giving the 8 a.m. biology lecture. You just mm-hmm. don't want to do that. So I look for good stories where I can explore something important about science, but in the context of a story that really like makes you wonder like, well, then what, then what happened? That's one of those great things about you know, storytelling is that once you kind of pull people in, they'll just go with you. And, uh, you know, along the way, you can stop and say, like, okay, like, to understand what happened next, let me just explain to you a little bit about, you know, what do you do when you discover that your hospital is full of antibiotic resistance bacteria? Like, what's the first step, you know? Like, or, or how do you sequence the DNA to, to know that it's spreading from 
people to people through a sink or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you just that stuff kind of just slots in along the way. Um, and you know, if it if it works right, then um, you know, then people come away like they have learned something, but they don't feel like they've learned something. Mm-hmm. You know? So does it dispirit you at all that you know we talked about people teaching creationism in the 80s, which then turned into intelligent design, like that is still an ongoing issue. But even bigger than that is, you know, climate, your most recent matter column when we're talking now was about, you know, climate and Arctic food chains. And when you've probably written about climate science for however many decades, almost. (laughs) So how do you feel about the sort of state of the understanding of that, given how much information is out there well it's sort of interesting for me where we are right now with science because when i was starting out as a science writer i kind of gravitated to writing about evolution just because it was just so cool um and i just felt like i had the you know the coolest beat at the magazine um but that also meant that i would get all this mail you know like just people just you know, they were praying for my soul or they were, you know, telling me how, you know, it was impossible that this could have evolved and so on. And and then, you know, when creationists would start setting up websites, then they would like, you know, single me out, you know, with articles and so on to somehow to kind of debunk me or something like that. And, you know, like I, there are these other writers who are like writing about chemistry or writing about computers and they kind of look at me like, man, like that's, <laughs> that's tough. Like, I'm sorry you have to deal with that. Um, you know, because they just wouldn't get that sort of, of a visceral response. But, um, you know, while I was at Discover, an editor there at the time, Andy Revkin, wrote the first cover story about global warming. I think that was in 1990, maybe. And just saying, like, hey, um, we, we've got to deal with this. You know, and and for a while, like, we would be writing about the science of global warming, just, you know, a standard science, and we weren't, weren't getting a lot of pushback. But mm-hmm. um, but then, you know, by 2000 or something, like, you could tell that there was something, there was a very well-organized resistance to it. There was a lot of weird sort of, you know, doubts, false doubts being raised, and, and like, something was going on. And then, it, and then that just sort of spiraled into, you know, climate scientists having their emails hacked and taken out of context. Uh, what came to be known as Climate Gate, and it right. just got more and more intense. And but you know, you got things with vaccines, like again, like mm-hmm. vaccine. It wasn't a big deal. I mean, we'd write about vaccines and the search for an HIV vaccine, things like that. It was sort of standard science writing. You know, now, like if you write about vaccines, you could really get attacked really intensely. So it doesn't change the truth, though. You know, global warming is still happening. Vaccines still work. Evolution is still true. No matter what someone on Twitter or someone in, a, in an administration is going to say, it's still true. And so we science writers just have to still be letting people know about what science has discovered. You know, what, you know, what we with our minds have discovered about the world, like, you know, to the best of our abilities. What is that? You know, it's that's our duty as science writers, and and we can't we can't let these things scare us off. Does it sort of creep into your writing in the sense of like instead of just telling stories and uh, illuminating ideas, you're sort of like 
feel like you're fighting a battle? Well, I mean, you know, the fact is that, you know, um, if you look at the surveys, I mean, you know, most Americans are concerned about global warming. Mm -hmm. They are. They see it as something to be concerned about. So I don't think it's, you shouldn't go into writing about things sort of saying like, anybody who doesn't agree with me is an idiot, you know? Like, that's just not cool. Like, I found, you know, writing about evolution just to say like, look, why do scientists come to these conclusions? Well, let me just show you how it works. You know, let me show you the work they do. Let me talk with them and, you know, tell you about their experiences and their process of their reasoning and so on. This is how science works. And, you know, I have had some people, you know, send me letters saying like, thanks. You know, I thought I was really clever as a creationist and that I knew more than these evolutionary biologists, but you actually showed me what they do. Mm -hmm. And I get it now, you know. Now, you know, it's not like there I have millions of those letters, but um, but I have enough that it cheers me up. So I do think that rather than just saying like, oh, I'm going after all the people who don't agree with me or don't agree with the science, I should say, it's better to just to engage with people, to sort of bring people into like how science actually works that can help them to see the scientists themselves when the scientists themselves do make these statements about the importance of recognizing things like climate change and so on, where those statements are coming from. Uh-huh. So is the book related to the Game of Genomes stuff? Kind of. The book is about heredity. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm doing is I'm, I'm writing about the concept of heredity. You know, heredity is something that everybody knows what it is, or at least think they know what it is. And, you know, there have been, you know, sort of concepts about heredity forever. You know, there's an old English saying, you know, like engenders like, you know, like <laughs> that's, that's how people would think about it. But why? You know, why is that? And genes are part of the answer, but they're not all of the answer. And the way we think about heredity today is just full of fallacies, you know, some of which I'm trying to address in my book. So yeah, getting my genome sequenced was definitely, there was definitely an opportunity there to kind of explore some of these issues, you know, to say like, okay, like, you know, if if I look at my genome, like, what does that tell me about my own ancestry? What does it tell me about genes that I have inherited and where those genes might have come from? You know, like, Mm -hmm. let me try doing some detective work there. So that's just one of a, a number of different things I've been working on recently to to try to get this book together. And what's the sort of like time scope of a book like this? Like how long do you work on a book? Um, typically. Typically. Uh, let's see. So this will be, I think my 13th. It depends. I mean, I can, if it's a very short book, I can get it done in a matter of months. If it's a big book, it can take a couple years. Um, I knew that this was going to be on the big side. Um, so I planned out a couple years and it's really big. <laughs> you know, actually, like at this point, it's, it's you know, I'm just going to be hacking away thousands of words here and there, you know, and just like, but that's, it's better to be hacking away thousands of words than to be like, oh gosh, I, I think I need another 50,000 words. Where am I going to find it? You know, <laughs> Lacking thousands of words is not a good, yes. it's not a good spot to be in. Yeah. It does depend, you know, as a freelancer, like book economics are weird because, you know, you write a proposal and you get all excited and, and then your agent shops it around and, yay, you know, someone someone wants to give you a contract. And then you get an advance and it looks good on paper. But, like, of course, like, you know, they 
they'll divide into thirds or quarters or fifths, you know, and and just dole it out um, very slowly. It's just the economics of of publishing, and so then you're like, well, I guess I'm going to have to like balance this with other work yeah. or whatever works for you in that particular situation. Um, and you know, then things get even more complicated because then you're like. Gee, I need to be really working on my book, and you know, like I've been doing all this other stuff so that I could work on the book, and now it's dinner time, and I want to go to sleep. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, books are um, tricky, and you know, I, I wouldn't tell people not to write books. You know, I mean, for science writing, those are the things that really can endure. You know, uh-huh. and they're the things where you can really kind of like present something that is going to really stick with people. I'll meet people who will tell me about, you know, reading, you know, my first book, which came out, like, I guess, 18 years ago at The Wire's Edge. And they'll, they'll still tell me, like, I love that book so much. And they'll tell me about the book. Mm-hmm. No one would say, like, oh, that article you wrote three years ago, that was amazing. Like, articles just, I mean, people enjoy them, they get stuff out of them, but it doesn't really stick the way books do. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask a question about your books that I, I don't want to sound pejorative in either direction, because I don't mean it at all this way. But there's a certain type of book that's based in science that distills different scientific studies down to lessons for people, uh, particularly business lessons that uh, can be incredibly popular. Yes. Um, and I, again, I'm not saying this majority. I like some of those books. Some of them are terrible. Some of them are wonderful. But you have never chosen to kind of go that route. Your books are more like grounded in just being about science and talking about science. And I'm wondering if there's, if you ever think about that and think like, maybe I should write one of these airport books. The airport books, yeah. I don't know. I mean, what would that be? It would be like the Parasite's Guide to Middle Management or something. <laughs> I it just, it just doesn't, I don't, it would be, that would be tough. You know, those airport books are almost entirely based on psychology research. Yeah, and, it's generally psychology, sociology stuff. Yeah, and I think, you know, these days, if you're going to write about psychology, especially social psychology, you really have to come to terms with, you know, the the fact that the scientists themselves are trying to come to terms with some issues in their own field. You know, they're having a real problem with replication, you know, so that the some of the most hottest findings they have, like other people go in and try to do it and they don't get the same result. And then the original authors say like, oh, but you didn't do it just so. You know, so that's why you weren't able to replicate it. And it's like, well, if it's such an important finding, say, like, uh, you know, pr- you know, the way that people can be primed to do something. And if it's so important and strong and significant that people should bear it in mind and read books about it, then surely it's something that could be replicated, even if it's, you didn't rep- perfectly um, copy someone's experiment. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's it would so- show up in, in yeah. other. Yeah. Through and, other means. Right, right. I mean, psychologists themselves are coming to terms with this. They're recognizing problems with statistics, you know, that they use, you know, the number of people that they study and so on. And um, that's, you know, but like that doesn't really, if you start talking about that in, in, a, in an airport book, people will be like, oh, well, like, but I wanted lessons for success. And now you're telling me about, you know, p-values and well, that's not what I wanted. So, yeah, I don't think I'll be able to to write one of those books. Uh, <laughs> it might it might make great financial sense too, but I, I just I just get distracted by the the science. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. I'm happy that that's your answer. 
Although I w- if you had said, actually, my new book is, uh, it just, it's actually 10 lessons from uh, heredity, then <laughs> I w- I'd be all right with that too. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, evolution definitely has its own problem with sort of, you know, pop lessons like, you know, well, we do this because, you know, we evolved to blah, blah, blah. Sure, know, sure. You know? Yeah. And, um, and you can certainly, people have joked like, oh, you could, you know, write a book about, you know, tips from our cavemen past about success today, you know, like in, in your love life or something. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be so horrible. <laughs> well, I have one more thing I want to ask you about, which is um, given, uh, the scope of your career so far and uh, all the science that you've covered, how do you sort of think about the period that you're writing about right now in terms of science? Like, does it feel like a real golden age of biology and understanding evolution? Does it feel like it would have been more fun to write in some previous golden age of understanding of these areas or that one is coming? Hmm. I think this is a pretty good time to be writing about biology. I started, like even in the 90s, like people didn't talk about genomes, all the DNA in a species. Like you didn't talk about that because like how could anyone ever see a whole genome at once? You know, people would build their whole careers on sequencing one gene Mm -hmm. and then they were very proud of that. Uh, And they should be. Now, you know, sequencing genomes is just a standard part of science and you can see so much about how the world works by looking at hundreds or thousands of genomes and you understand things about evolution and so on that we just it was impossible to, to see before so in the, in that regard it definitely is a golden age you know there are challenges to the enterprise of science journalism how are magazines and newspapers going to um, support themselves as they present this stuff you know like there, there used to be a lot of you know, science sections in newspapers. And then a lot of them got rid of the the science sections and then the newspapers themselves disappeared. And these magazines used to be bigger, Discover and Orion. And like there was a more robust science magazine industry happening. Yeah. 1980s, there was just a whole bunch of science magazines that popped up. Um, Omni, Science Digest. There's still some that, that are that are doing pretty well. And, you know, it is nice to see science articles in sort of non-science magazines. You know, I, I, every now and then I try to sort of, you know, push in those directions. So it's, I like writing, say, I've written some things for The Atlantic. I, mm-hmm. I like that because- I it, love that piece about the um, the bone disease. I mean, loved is a weird way to say that. It's a very, <laughs> it's it's hard to read, but it was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So this is a story about, it was about rare diseases in general, and I was focusing on this one called, let me see if I can get it right, Fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva, FOP where basically if you sort of bruise yourself a little bit, your muscles respond by basically turning into bone. And so you build a second skeleton over your life. That was a pretty amazing experience, especially meeting the people who have the disease. It's very um, it's very emotional just to sort of spend time with people who are sort of like trapped in, in, the, in the skeleton. Like you're just, you, it's very hard to imagine having a life like that, and then to see them actually living their life, not being just passive, actually being organized, you know, actually like pushing for research to get their disease cured and so on. It's That really helped to sort of remind me to remember that stories about science and medicine are not just stories about scientists, you know, like they're bigger stories and there are more people involved. And so sometimes you need to like spend time with with other people as well to really understand the whole story. 
Well, Carl, thank you for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. Really, really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. Thanks to Carl Zimmer for coming in. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Long Form. Thanks to our intern, Courtney Harrell, and our editor this week, Mickey Capper. As always, thanks to our sponsors, Audible, Squarespace, and MailChimp. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist, and we'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.